Welcome to Seeking Scripture Deep Diving Bible Study. I'm Christy Jordan, and I want to help you develop a firsthand relationship with the whole Word of God. For links and graphics mentioned in my podcast, please visit the corresponding post on SeekingScripture.com. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. Good morning, siblings. Today's readings are Leviticus 11 through 13. We have a lot to cover today, so you might want to grab a snack and a drink and settle in. Leviticus 11 is one of the better known chapters in Leviticus because it goes into detail on what animals are considered clean and unclean. Now, below in this post, you really need to check it out. I found a great graphic of clean and unclean animals on a church website. Please note that I do not know the website or ministry, so proceed with discernment, but it really is a great graphic. I'm going to talk through it briefly, but you got to check it out. It has a list of clean flying animals, such as chicken, dove, uh, duck, and unclean flying animals, clean insects and unclean insects, clean land animals, such as bison, cattle, deer, unclean land animals, which include cat, dog, squirrel, rats. Um, Clean water animals, which would be bass, bluefish, anchovy, cod, and unclean water animals, such as some shellfish, um, I think all shellfish actually, catfish, shark, dolphin, porpoise, things like that. So check out this graphic when you get a chance. Uh, Many folks have tried to determine why some animals are considered clean and others are not. Personally, I'm not really concerned with this. When he says jump, I prefer my answers to be either how high or yes, Lord, rather than starting a discussion as to why he would want me jumping. Having said that, though, many have noticed that by and large, most of the unclean animals are what is known as the cleanup crew of the animal world. They are trash collectors, garbage eaters, the scavengers, filters of the ocean, etc., Now, it's important to understand that to a Hebrew mindset, unclean animals are never considered food. Why are we even talking about this today? Well, because Yahweh is talking about this in our reading today. Yahweh will talk about other things tomorrow, so keep your seatbelt fastened because this train is about to depart for a new station. So, is this how you eat kosher? No, this is how you eat biblically clean. There's a difference. All kosher foods, by and large, are biblically clean, but not all biblically clean foods are kosher. Why is that? Well, the laws of kashrut, which is the kosher guidelines, have additional distinctions in order for something to be considered clean. Remember when we talked about that in the verse that says, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk, and what it could possibly mean? Well, our beloved Jewish brethren centuries ago decided that this meant they should not mix meat and dairy. So you won't see cheese or dairy in a meat dish, or really even at the same meal. They also take additional measures to keep their food clean by not cooking meat and dairy in the same pots, etc. Personally, I respect their zeal in taking additional steps to help prevent them from going against the word of Yahweh. The problem comes in when any of Yahweh's people hold up these man-made commandments as more important than Yahweh's, and Jews and Christians alike do this daily. So let's not be finger pointing here. Um, Something really interesting to consider is when we go back to Genesis 7, verses 1 through 3, we see that the concept of what animals were clean and what were unclean had already been conveyed by the Father at an earlier time, 
as evidenced by Noah knowing the difference between clean and unclean animals. Now, there are some verses that are commonly used to say that God changed these ordinances, although we see no such statement from the Father or Messiah. Remember Malachi 3.6. But I want to talk a little bit about the common verses used and a little background on each one and how it is used. We'll begin with Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Now, this is often used as the famous verse in which Messiah declares all things clean. But there's three key issues with this. Um, number one, Messiah is being judged by the Pharisees for not ritually washing his hands before the meal. We are clearly told this. This is one of their man-made doctrines, which they held up as equal to, or even more important than, a commandment from Yahweh. He is specifically calling this out and contrasting their doctrines with actual commandments. In Mark 7, 7, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, number two, these were Jews. There would not have been unclean food on the table as unclean animals were not considered food. And number three, in Mark seven nineteen, that whole sentence in which Messiah declared all things clean, well, he never said that. It was added in later. There's a link below you can click to see what translations it does appear in and which ones it doesn't appear in. And there's also a link for you to check out the interlinear version so that you can see it is not in the original text. Now, don't get worried about this. We're going to talk about it some more when we get to Mark. <laughs> and we're going to also see that in the other Gospels where this same scenario is retold, the same scene, that sentence doesn't appear there either. So let's move on to Acts 10, Peter and the Sheet. Now, y'all, this one absolutely kills me because it is one of the most pivotal verses in the Bible with regards to Gentiles. This is a major event for us. So up until this moment, the gospel was pretty much reserved for our Jewish brethren. Remember what Messiah said in Matthew 15, 24? The Gentiles were considered unclean. But at this moment in history, all of that changed, and the Father used Peter's dream to bring that about. Now, most folks ignore all of that by pulling out a single sentence, blatantly ignoring all obvious context, and then walking away with that sentence in hand. If we read Acts 10 through 11, we will see that Peter had a dream wherein a voice told him to arise, kill, and eat. Peter was horrified at this very thought, Acts 10, 14. Why? Because in Peter's words, he had never eaten anything the Father deemed unclean. Now, this was long after Messiah had taken on human form. Peter had personally learned under his direct teachings, and Messiah had given himself as atonement for our sins. Long after Messiah had ascended, Peter had still not eaten anything unclean. So what did Peter do as soon as his vision had passed? He pondered it, and then the Father in spirit form spoke to him and told him that three men were looking for him and he was to go with them. In Acts 10, verses 28 through 29, Peter arrives at the house of the Gentile Cornelius and promptly interprets the dream. It reads, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. But the Father knows us, and so, in His grace, 
He's repetitive when he knows we're going to be dense about things. So Peter repeats his interpretation fully from start to finish in Acts 11, verses 11 through 18. It reads, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Y'all? This is huge news for us. The Father has always made a way for sojourners to join themselves to Him, but this is opening up a full-on highway for Gentiles to become part of His chosen people, and we've reduced it to being about a ham sandwich. This reminds me of when Esau gave up his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. It's that tragic. Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17, is another popular verse that is used to refute Leviticus 11. The problem is that when this is taken out of context, it sounds like the opposite of what Paul's saying. Now, in Colossians 2, 16, we read, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of any holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. These verses are often used as proof that Yahweh's feasts are to no longer be observed and that all foods are clean. See number three, my list above. Despite Messiah keeping them and Paul keeping them long after Messiah had ascended. But most importantly, Yahweh says that his feast would be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. That's from Leviticus 23. So knowing this view of the verse contradicts Yahweh's word, let us look at it from another possible angle. So Paul is encouraging new believers. Now, let us assume they were previously taking part with multiple God worship, in accordance with the custom and culture they lived in. Suddenly, they stop all that and begin worshiping only one God. But what if they get a medical issue and friends urge them to go to this temple and offer a sacrifice to Asclepius for healing, and they refuse, letting them know that, no, they only have one God now. 
They have a bad harvest and are told that they should have made sacrifices to the goddess Demeter. And they reiterate that, no, I worship the one true God now. And so now they're already acting very strange in the eyes of their friends, going against their logic. And to top it off, they start keeping the feast that the Jews keep, which includes a new moon observance and avoiding certain foods. Also, holy days to Paul are what they are to Yahweh, days that Yahweh has declared holy unto him, not man-made holidays. So in the thick of this culture, when these folks suddenly stop what they've been doing all their lives and step away from what everyone else they know is doing, they're going to get judged harshly by those close to them, as well as by those not so close to them. They're going to hear it. A lot of it. (laughs) Reasons why they shouldn't do that. Reasons why they shouldn't be abandoning their gods. Why it is foolish to do so. And on and on. And let me tell you. When you come into the way and start obeying the Father and following the example of Messiah, the pressure from those who are not doing so increases exponentially. And it doesn't let up. Therefore, these people desperately need encouragement from those walking this way, especially when they're surrounded by folks who aren't. Paul knew that from his own personal experience, doing much the same thing. And therefore, he wrote this letter to strengthen and edify them. Now, with that perspective, let's read the passage. This is from Colossians 2. It begins in 11 and it goes through 23. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, introducing into these things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in the world, you subject yourselves to regulations. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things with perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. We're going to cover this a lot more when we get to Colossians. We'll go more in depth. The body of followers of Messiah should not be concerned with judgments made toward us from folks outside of the body of believers, or even from within when they're not biblically based. Paul is saying not to let neither lawless idol worshipers judge us, nor Pharisees holding up doctrine as if it were commandment. They judge us according to their ways, because Yahweh's ways are foreign to them. 
That's just my thoughts on this, y'all. Test it. If it doesn't line up with scripture, just toss it. Yeah, but this was for the Jewish people. Yeah, you hear that a lot. Actually, the Father is speaking to all the tribes of Israel as his chosen people at this point. Judah is just one of those tribes. You know what else he gave to Israel? The Ten Commandments. For more to chew on, see Romans 11 and Isaiah 56. Isaiah 66, 17 is another great rabbit trail. Who are they speaking of? Is this the past or the future? You definitely want to check out Isaiah 66, 17 as well. In closing, many of you are going to leave this post and go have a bacon or sausage biscuit for breakfast. Do I love you any less? I certainly do not. Will I join you? I'd be happy to drink a cup of coffee and chat while you eat. (laughs) This is definitely something to prayerfully consider with the Father one-on-one. He's the source of wisdom, and he wants us to come to him with questions about his instructions. Now, a reminder, why are we even talking about this today? Because Yahweh's talking about this in our reading today. Yahweh will talk about other things tomorrow. So as I said, keep your seatbelt fastened because this train is about to depart for a new station. Lesson for the day. Never accept a verse taken out of context. If someone gives you a verse, take a chapter. Better yet, take the whole book. Put that verse back where it came from and see what it really says. Okay, y'all, ready to really have your socks knocked off? Woohoo! I'm excited. In a few minutes, you're going to be too. So today, we're reading a lot about what most translations refer to as leprosy. But that isn't a very accurate translation. Okay, so it is completely inaccurate, quite wrong, and even misleading. I guess I'm just going to toss subtlety out the door today. So the actual word is zarat, and it is an affliction that happens superficially on someone's skin, but it's temporary. We will learn about other types of zarat later. Now, you'll notice in our reading that while the priests were called upon to diagnose the affliction and to declare the person cured, They did not ever attempt to do anything to actually cure them. Further, there isn't even a mention of them even praying for the victim. Why is this? Well, one good reason would be that Zerat is a spiritual affliction, a judgment from Yahweh. Now, this was a special disease, and there was no cure other than Yahweh releasing them from their temporary affliction. Interestingly, the priest was not even required to discern what the person had done to cause this affliction. There are many reasons why that we see God chose to choose to temporarily punish someone this way. Now, one is when Miriam speaks out against Moses in Numbers 12, verses 1 through 16. We also see Moses temporarily afflicted and immediately healed when he was with Yahweh teaching the signs that he would be allowed to use before the great Exodus in 4, 6, Exodus 4, 6. Now, Moses showed this sign to the Israelites in order to embolden them for what was ahead in Exodus 4.30. Some of the reasons why Yahweh might afflict someone with this would be punishment for gossip or any form of evil tongue, and that is a great rabbit trail for y'all to take, Um, arrogance, murder, theft, or others. Any number of sins could potentially be punished this way according to Yahweh's will and wisdom. Now, hang in there with me because we're fixing to go around the block and end up somewhere you never expected. So, once a person was determined by the priest to be healed of his or her affliction, they were still unclean and had to be made clean before they were able to return to the community. 
You will read today that this was done by taking two clean birds and sacrificing one. That one had to be bled out in a special bowl. Then the remaining bird had to be dipped in the blood and then into fresh water. The actual word here is best translated as living water. What is living water? I'm glad you asked. Living water is flowing water, such as a stream or a brook or a river. It is not stagnant water. It is constantly renewing. Now, living water was very important to Yahweh's people. It was often used in sacrifices and making the unclean people clean again, later in baptisms, and so on. In short, it was necessary. And yet, streams and rivers dried up from time to time, and new sources would have to be found. In other words, it was not necessarily an unlimited supply at any one source. So, once this person had suffered through the penalty for their sin, a sacrifice was made, and another living creature was dipped in the blood of the sacrifice, then in living water and allowed to go free. Now, you may have already caught on to the other source of living water in the Bible. In John 4.10, Messiah said, If you knew the gift of Yahweh and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And in John 7.38, he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Wow, it's coming into focus now, right? So we're afflicted because of our sins, but Jesus came to be the sacrifice for our judgment. How was the sacrifice performed for Zerat? Well, in order to become clean, one needed blood and living water. In the book of John, after Jesus had declared the sacrifice to be finished, John 19.34 tells us, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. It is finished. Blood and living water. We are made clean. Now, on to being made holy. Test everything. Hold tight to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. I love y'all. Bye-bye.